Hello and welcome back to season two of Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medin, and I'm so excited to be back hosting our second season. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a different guest and chatting all things fertility. As always, our hope is that through this series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes goes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. Today, I'm delighted to have in studio with us Dr. Sarah Murphy, who is a Dublin-based doctor working in obstetrics and gynecology. She has a special interest in women's health, including exercise and nutrition, and also has an amazing Instagram account where she shares lots of valuable information on female well-being and fertility. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks, Renee. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to meet you in person. I love your Instagram account. I think it's amazing, all of the... Um, the stuff that you share, it's so honest and relatable, easy to understand. And I, I know so many people get so much from it. Thank you. It's so nice to hear that because um, I suppose that's the aim for for women to take something from it. So to hear that that might be achieved is great. And when, when actually did you start the Instagram account? I actually started it years ago when I was in college and mm-hmm. actually focused more on my fitness. Yeah. Um, and then I had to take a step back from that and I sort of asked myself, what's the aim here? I yeah. didn't think it was achieving anything. Yeah. Um, and then as I started to work in the job, it I can't really pinpoint the time, but it transitioned into actually an information account for others. Yeah. Um, and now I feel like it's achieving something and isn't just a a useless. Yeah, you're not just doing it for the sake for of the it. Sake you're of not it. just creating content exactly. that's doing nothing. You're actually that just wouldn't mean anything to me, and yeah. I'd find that frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now it's I suppose to try and give something to others. Yeah, no, it's really nice when you can actually see that people are are getting something out of it. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose even if you know you'd say if one in ten women take something from it, mm. then that's it's worth it. Yeah. Okay. Um. So tell me a bit about yourself. Sure. Um. So. Where you're from. Yeah. So I'm from Ireland. Um, I'm from Athlone, so the Midlands. Um, went to college here, um, did medicine in UCD, mm-hmm. and then specialised in obstetrics and gynaecology. And now work in uh, the Coombe Hospital in Dublin. And did you always know that that was... Well, first of all, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? No. First I, of all. No, and <laughs> do you know the way you meet people and they have this really profound story of why they wanted to do medicine, whether it's they suffered from illness or something they loved. Yeah. They wanted to fix people. You don't have that. I don't have that. I had that I loved working with people and Mm. I loved science and medicine put those two together. I did it in college. I loved it. Mm. Um, And it went from there. In terms of why I wanted to do obstetrics Mm. and gynae, when we're in college, we do rotations in every um, specialty. Um, And we had a rotation in obstetrics and gynecology. And I had never met doctors before who were such advocates for their patients. Mm. So... It wasn't just about the medicine. It was, you'd hear the consultants talk and they'd be like, but you really have to think about how she's feeling. And they were just, they were advocates. Um, And then, so that really made me love it. And then it's a really interesting specialty for us because it marries so many different aspects. So you've, pure medicine will say, you know, because women have their own medical problems. You get to do scanning you get to do surgeries, you get to see lovely babies. <laughs> so it's just, it's a really broad and dynamic specialty. So it's really enjoyable. And where did you do your rotation? And I first started, I did a few weeks in Hollow Street and a few weeks in the Coombe. So there were 
busy units so you got a nice exposure to the special and now you're back at the coom yeah so what do you actually do on a daily basis like what would a day look like for you yeah so that's I suppose that's the other thing I love every week is different Mm. so we'll say on Monday I'm in the operating theatre so that's doing things like cesarean sections um you know DNCs Mm. um you might do laparoscopies um you'd be assisting consultants with hysterectomies and things like that um, on a Tuesday, I'm in the diabetic clinic. So that is where women... Who- I know all about that. <laughs> I'm a type 1 diabetic and I went to ah, the coom. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I didn't see you there. How long no, have you been I've there? No, I've only been there since July. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, I, my last time there would have been in 2018. Yeah, with Prof Daly. Yes. yes. Love yeah. him. Yes. Yeah. He's gone now. Oh, is he? Yeah, um, yeah so, he was great. Yeah, so... I but that's that a busy, clinic. busy clinic. Busy clinic. Yeah. Um, lots going on. So it's where we see women with type 1, type 2, mm. and also gestational diabetes mm. who are on medication. Mm. Um, and then in Tuesday afternoon, might be in theatre again. At some stage, you do a call shift. So that's where you work from... We do 5 p.m. till 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then that has everything in it. Thursdays, you might be on the labour ward. And then Fridays, I do the preterm birth clinic. So it's women who would have risk factors for... Th- pre- for delivering their baby early um, and we actually do scans to measure the length of their cervix and that's just a typical week and this can change based on staffing level so and would you be at uh, many births aside from doing c-sections yeah so the days you're on call and the days you're on the labor ward you you know it depends on the activity levels but you might be at um, births typically we don't attend the lovely unless week. unless you need to be there exactly yeah. so uh, you know if I love to watch um, if it's okay with the mum. We call them spontaneous deliveries, so it's where no one else is involved. Um, But if it's busy, the only births I'd be at is if mum needs a hand. If there's a problem. If there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds amazing. It is. And so exciting. And it's, yeah, as you say, it's probably just lovely to marry all of your interests, but also get to see the more human side of things and not just the medicine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Like it's just so varied. and every day is different and it's you're meeting so many different people from different backgrounds like it's impossible to get bored mm-hmm. um so yeah. that's what I love about it yeah amazing okay so let's go back to basics mm-hmm. and talk about fertility mm-hmm. so you know fertility and infertility as words and you know terms get mm-hmm. banded around a lot but what actually is fertility what does the word yeah mean? I, I suppose in the most simplest of terms fertility is is your ability to to conceive um a baby and I think we assume it until it's not there if that makes sense yeah um so I think you know and especially we all grow up talking so much about you know avoiding teenage pregnancy <laughs> not and getting pregnant <laughs> and it isn't then until you sit back um and you think oh this is actually now something I need to think about um so I suppose it's the absence of of infertility okay um, yeah. so then on the flip side mm-hmm. infertility yeah. is is when for whatever reason, whether it be, you know, um, a factor to do with the woman or if you're in a heterosexual relationship, a factor to do with the man, for some reason, you're not able to conceive a baby. Um, and there can be, we can split it into primary or secondary infertility, um, or we can split it into different factors. So it's so let's, yeah, let's talk yeah. about primary and secondary, because a lot of people 
like really don't know that yeah. those two exist people just think infertility is mm-hmm. infertility but that's not the case yeah so, so primary infertility would be where you've you've never had a baby mm-hmm. so um for whatever reason you've you've never been able to conceive so it's in the first instance mm-hmm. secondary infertility is where you have had a baby and now you're not able to, or you're struggling to conceive again um and that that one, i think sometimes people think secondary infertility is fine because at least you have a baby at home, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, and it comes with, I think, a lot of confusion and frustration. Mm. Well, I did it before, why can't I do it now? So I think the two of them need to be respected um, in the same amount. And I find sometimes secondary fertility isn't. Yeah, and would would secondary infertility be as common as primary? Not as common, but it is incredibly common. I think it's more common than, than people think about. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's often just that kind of thought of like, ah, sure, it'll happen. Just yeah, it, it happened once. Yeah, course, it happened once. You just have to wait. You just have again. to relax. Yeah. yeah, and that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the causes of infertility, is like, are there loads and loads of causes of infertility? Is it hereditary? There's loads of causes. Um, we think that there may be a hereditary aspect, mm-hmm. but as with so much in medicine we don't have Mm. nice clear data Mm. on this um often we'll split it up into different factors so um it might be something to do with the ovaries or where your eggs are coming from so you know is it a drive from the brain that you're not producing the hormones that are triggering your ovaries to release an egg um, you might see this in something like PCOS mm-hmm. where you, we call them anovulatory cycles. So you're not producing an egg each cycle. So would you still have a cycle in that instance? You can so yeah. not, and not always. So you'll find women with PCOS may say that their periods are really spaced out. Mm. Um, and that can often be a sign that they're not ovulating. Yeah. Um, it can be a tubal factor. So the egg has to move along a tube. The tube might be blocked, it might be, there might be kind of fluid in it, it might be sticky with things called adhesions that might be blocking yeah. it. It may be a case that there's a problem with the womb itself. There can sometimes be scar tissue or we call them adhesions, it's sort of like sticky scar mm. tissue we'll say. Um, it might be a problem with if you're in a heterosexual relationship, the, the sperm aren't traveling through the tubes um, that will bring them to um, ejaculate um that they don't have great motility mm-hmm. you know there's there's hu- loads of different aspects and then we'd also see that there might be some conditions that you know cause issues with fertility you know things like um, cystic fibrosis with a man would cause issues so yeah there's huge spectrum um and in terms of like when we're talking about male fertility and female infertility um you know is it you know there's often this you know presumption that if if a heterosexual couple aren't con- aren't able to conceive that it's it's oh it must be the eggs it must be the the woman that's not the case no and if we we actually split it into usually one th- we call them female and male factors mm-hmm. so one third is usually to do with the female factor so to do with the woman one third to do with the man if it is a heterosexual relationship and one third un- unexplained so actually not that it's I, you know I never like to get into it it's anybody's fault yeah. but it's usually spread out equally but it's not a fault yeah um so in terms of like you know we kind of touched on PCOS mm-hmm. two of the like really big conditions that we're seeing coming through therapy fertility obviously is PCOS and endometriosis mm-hmm. in terms of um female 
factor infertility. Um, let's let's talk a bit about endometriosis. Mm. And I know sometimes there's a bit of confusion over which is which, and there's a bit of crossover, but actually they're they're completely separate conditions. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit about endometriosis, and maybe you could just explain what it is, what the symptoms are, and what the I suppose impacts on yeah. ability con- mm-hmm. to conceive could be. Sure. So with endometriosis, so in your womb you have a lining called the endometrium and that's the part that you know builds up every month and sheds and gives you your period um in endometriosis tissue like that is found outside of the womb so it might be on your bowel on your bladder on your ovaries or around the pelvis um, and it's where it's not meant to be so each month it responds to those hormones that you know give you your period and it can become inflamed it can lead to scar tissue um and then in terms of the symptoms because of this you know, pain is the biggest one. I think anyone who knows anything about endometriosis has an association in their head of painful periods, which is mm. absolutely correct. But there's loads of other ones. So it would be pain during sexual intercourse, um, typically on deep penetration, a pain moving your bowels, mm. pain going to the toilet to pass urine. You can have blood in your urine, blood in your stools. And then there's, I suppose, this more psychological aspects of it as well. So women typically feel wrecked, so mm. they'll complain of fatigue. Um, low mood and depression so there's a huge spectrum of symptoms we see with it and usually at what point do those symptoms start presenting like as soon as a young girl gets her first period would would it be as soon as that or would it be later on into the teens or 20s it depends on the woman so you will find often when a woman's diagnosed with endometriosis and it can be well into their 20s unfortunately you'll often go back and they'll say yeah, I had to skip school because my mm. periods were so painful um, since I was 13. So you'll usually link back to that um, quite early. I suppose the sexual intercourse typically comes later. Sure. Um, I suppose bowel and urinary issues, they'll differ depending on where your endometriosis is. Um, so you might not always pinpoint those. And I think you'll find the tiredness or the low mood comes that little bit later. And I think just as women, we're kind of conditioned to put up with a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm sure a lot of times people don't actually go to a GP or, or, or they have gone to a GP and, you know, and it just hasn't been correctly diagnosed. And and that's the thing, I suppose as well, because pain is, is a subjective thing. Mm. So, you know, which makes it easy to dismiss, Mm. um, because as someone might tell you, my periods are excruciating Mm. and often I think you'll find people say, no, they mustn't be like you, you know, yeah, take a paracetamol, paracetamol. <laughs> and get on with it yeah. um but I think it's it's high time that we start listening to women and believing their symptoms for what they're telling us yeah um because all, all, while it can be subjective if a woman is telling you that she's not going to work or not going to school because she's in so much pain mm. that's regardless if she's not in that much pain that's significant does that make sense yeah to impact yeah. on your to day-to-day your life, life. Yeah, yeah for sure that's significant and if so say if it's not diagnosed early enough and different treatments are not started and preventative measures whatever they might be what what is the long-term impact of that so if someone is suffering with endo for a long time what does that start to look like for yeah. a person so obviously there's the impact on their quality of life mm. um and how they've been able to cope but then we get into the fertility aspect Mm. of it so I was saying you know the tissue gets inflamed and then it becomes scar tissue over time and we see again these things called adhesions Mm. and this is where because the scar if you think of scar tissue almost as it can be sticky I suppose is a nice way to explain it 
everything in your pelvis is usually mobile so your bowels able to move and your fallopian tubes and ovaries are all able to move and coexist and when they become sticky and stick together that movement has stopped um in really bad endo when you if you go in to actually look you'll see the bowel is stuck to the womb and it's stuck to the bladder mm. and so one that's causing severe pain but two it really affects fertility um so we need you know the fallopian tubes to be able to be mobile to collect the egg they need to be we call it we say patent so they need to be open for the tube to move and when we see these scar tissues or adhesions that movement or that mobility is lost um, and it really impacts on fertility and so how could that be prevented say if someone is diagnosed early like is there a way to prevent that happening so that a person could conceive spontaneously without needing assistance or like how how is that prevented so I, I think I do think that women find this line that I'm about to say quite frustrating mm. but the first line treatment for um, endometriosis is hormonal treatment mm. um, the reason for that is the hormones are the thing that is affecting the endometriotic tissue so if you stop that drive you stop the tissue becoming inflamed and scarred so we try to blunt that so what type of hormone would you be talking so you we talk a lot about the marina coil Mm. um so that's if women don't know it's a coil that's put into the womb and it releases progesterone it basically tells if we say negative feedback so it stops your own body producing hormones so it stops the drive on the tissue you can also look at the contraceptive pill as well so that would be like the progesterone only pill yeah. you can go on the combined one either okay um so either of them would would work so is it really the production of estrogen that inc- that like triggers off that tissue exactly okay um but we find because progesterone will still send back a negative feedback loop so it'll mm. work but it's the disease is driven by estrogen and and why do people find that frustrating i think because it's not a cure it's mm. a treatment mm. um and i think a lot of women will say you're just you're just um masking the disease you're mm. not dealing with it and i think that can be really frustrating and i think some women like to avoid synthetic hormones for whatever reason sure. the next thing we talk about then would be surgery um it's not very common in Ireland so when we talk about surgery for endometriosis there would be one type of surgery where you'd go in and you just you might cut the bits that are sticky um, and you might burn them Mm -hmm. to stop them becoming inflamed we know that that's not the best type of surgery so what's that called ablation ablation yeah the best type of surgery is excision so that's actually where you cut out the parts of the endometriotic tissue so they can't reactivate again mm. um it's slowly coming into ireland so for all of these skills you know people need to be trained in them to start doing them to start training us and yeah. that takes time i know yeah. that's frustrating but it does um but we now are starting to see new consultants who've trained abroad in places like australia who are doing it and would that happen say through the maternity hospitals yeah would people so, be coming into the coom to have these exactly so there's there's two consultants i think at the moment in the coom who who do this excision surgery um it's done a lot in the uk they're you know the uk are typically a little bit ahead of us um yeah. but it is starting to come across um to ireland now so i suppose if someone has endo and it's at the stage where things you know for want of a better word have kind of stiffened and seized up and there's no movement in the fallopian tubes is the only option really fertility treatment or how how do these people get pregnant yeah so it can be really difficult 
Um, if you go for the keyhole surgery or the laparoscopy, mm. sometimes if you cut the adhesions, you'll get a little bit of motility. Sometimes if one tube looks particularly you know, closed mm. off, you might talk about removing it mm. um, so that it's just the good tube that's left. But in stages, we put endometriosis into four stages. When you're coming into stage four where the disease is particularly bad, it is often where you'll start talking about fertility treatments mm. because you've lost the ability for the egg to move down into the womb um, to become a little baby. So it is often yeah. that you'll start talking about things like IVF. Okay. Um, okay, so then in terms of PCOS, mm-hmm. what is PCOS? So PCOS is a syndrome. So it is where you have an imbalance of hormones it's not always that you have lots of cysts on your ovaries, which I think people think because of the name, obviously. Yeah. Um, you can have cysts on the ovaries, but it's typically driven by an imbalance in hormones. Um, so it's where women have an overdrive of the male hormone and less, I suppose, of the female hormones. This has effects on your periods, so mm-hmm. it's they can be all over the place. So women might say, you know, my periods are every 60 days. Um, and it typically means they're not ovulating. So in terms of conceiving, that's obviously a problem because if you're not ovulating, you can't conceive. Exactly. So if, if everything's perfect, you, you ovulate 12 times a year. So mm. in theory, you've only 12 times a year where you can conceive. In PCOS, you might only ovulate. One or two. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. that's one or two times per year where you can get pregnant. And then is, also, if you don't know when that is, you can't really time that's it. That's the or, thing. Like these women, you know, they don't know, you know, one cycle might be 40 days, the next might be 60, the next might be 90. So you can't even, you know, these apps, you know, when people say, oh, follow your cervical mucus, <laughs> use these apps, it's lost. It's useless, yeah. yeah. Um, and in, in terms of uh, being able to conceive naturally, is that the, the main reason why it might be more difficult for someone with PCOS to conceive purely because you don't know when you're ovulating? Yeah, that would or, be the biggest yeah. reason. There is probably a theory when women have PCOS there's also insulin resistance Mm. um we think that that has a role in conception as well and you know you might find that other women who don't have PCOS um there's there's discussions about whether or not they're insulin resistant that's so interesting I wonder why that would have an impact on this is I don't know if you know but but, uh, loads of things in medicine I always try to well we (laughs) always try to see is there a survival benefit of it mm. I wonder is it that a high sh- you know if you're insulin resistant you have a higher sugar is that not an ideal scenario environment for a pregnancy for a yeah pregnancy. like and I, I suppose that makes sense because you know I know from being pregnant and my own like having to manage my insulin mm. you know my you become even more insulin resistant when you're pregnant anyways yeah. um and it's all over the place because yeah. it's all affected by hormones so yeah so it's it's hard to know exactly why yeah. um, but that, I'd say that certainly plays a role as well for these women and what are the symptoms of PCOS yeah. I think a lot of people would usually associate that with maybe additional hair growth yeah um, what are the what are the other kind of symptoms is pain a big symptom as well can be it's it's less common so usually it'll be kind of bloating and discomfort Mm. the irregular periods they could be heavier Mm. um and then women will say they kind of have hair growth where a woman typically isn't supposed to so it might be on your face Mm. um on your belly yeah yeah really thick hair on your arms and legs women might also say that they have acne you know they went for years without any issues and now they have acne on their face on their back um 
and then as well you'll see kind of just tiredness as well and and kind of mood disturbances yeah. with it as well. And what are the treatments for PCOS? Or is, is there a treatment? <clears throat> is there a cure? Or is it just something that people have to live with and manage? Um, with PCOS, which I think people like the idea of non-hormonal um, mm. treatments, so there is diet and exercise has been proven to be beneficial. Mm. Um, sometimes women with PCOS may have be overweight or have a BMI that's slightly higher than normal. And we find actually if a woman is to lose weight, which I know is easier said than done, um, some of the symptoms start to abate, which is great. Um, In terms of trying to regulate your cycle, we do talk about starting um, the oral contraceptive pill to try and even get a withdrawal bleed, um, you know, in that week where you come off it. Mm. In terms of fertility, we would talk, we can, you know, there's some steps we talk about before we, we move on to, um i suppose more interventional treatments Mm. so we can talk about um getting your body to ovulate um and there's tablets we can prescribe for that and also we talk about prescribing metformin so Mm. that's a tablet that women who've type 2 diabetes might Mm. be on and we find that it helps in cases of um, pcos as well okay so we touched on briefly diet and exercise um nutrition Mm -hmm. what role does food let's let's go with food for the moment (coughs) what role does food have on in general female you know fertility yeah but like we all know that you know what what we eat affects our our mood and how we feel in ourselves but mm-hmm. how does it have an impact on fertility i suppose it's, it's actually massive and it's probably much greater than we would have thought before mm. um we know that different nutrients um and minerals will impact your egg quality mm. and i suppose an egg that's of greater quality is more likely um to become a baby um we know that different um, minerals so for example coenzyme q10 is more likely to make you ovulate Mm. um, and to regulate ovulation then in terms i suppose of the developing baby you want to support that developing pregnancy as much as possible sometimes when a woman has a miscarriage it might be that something wasn't um genetically okay or Mm. um correct with the developing embryo so you want to support that process as much as possible and that's where we start talking i suppose about things like folic acid um um iodine a lot of people are now talking about choline in the development of the baby as well um so the actual the impact of diet and minerals is Mm. is probably massive so when we're talking about a person's you know nutritional um their daily intake i suppose should we be getting all of that from what we're eating or do we need to take a rake of supplements you know probably a bit of both so Mm. I think in the in the first instance you should try and get as much from food as possible there's some that we we don't get enough of so for example folic acid is the first one sure um any woman of childbearing age so basically any woman who's who's getting a period should be taking folic acid um in Ireland we don't get enough sunlight we need to be taking vitamin d Mm -hmm. If you're trying to conceive, probably it's no harm to take it the whole time, but October to April is the general rule. If you're thinking about conceiving, I would, if you're a vegan or you don't eat fish, Mm. I would start thinking about um, omega-3 supplements. There is no recommendation in Ireland at the moment to take choline, Mm. um, but I'm seeing it a lot in us recommendations so that's something to consider as Mm -hmm. a supplement what is choline um it's just it's another mineral um and it's it's thought to support the baby's um development of their nervous system 
Yeah. And is that something that would be found in any sorts of food? It, I there, I actually don't know what yeah. food supplements it's, yeah. or food it's found but in. But you could get it in a supplement. You'd get it in yeah. a supplement yeah. um, or a dietitian would certainly be able to, yeah. to advise. Yeah. Um, and then it depends as well if you eat fish. Um, iodine would be another one that you might need to supplement. I suppose it's, you know, it's if it's, if it's financially viable, a broad supplement like, you know, there's different ones on the market. Like are, a multivitamin. Exactly. Um, Which probably most people would be taking anyways yeah or the you know there's I know there's ones that are branded for preg- pregnancy itself but it's probably they're kind of like the exact same I'm pretty sure yeah it's <laughs> all just branding. all marketing yeah. <laughs> if you're thinking about having a baby it's you know eat well and just maybe it's no yourself, harm yeah. to add in um a supplement and just yeah. to make sure that vitamin d there mightn't be sometimes there's not enough in them mm. um so just to make sure that there is and would water like again we all know that it's really important to stay hydrated but would that be like if, if someone is dehydrated all the time I know myself I like often forget to drink water yeah and I could get to you know four o'clock in the day and I'm like oh yeah I haven't <laughs> drank I've, had anything. Of, I've had lots of coffee yeah um how important is that Pro- probably like it's important to support just the processes that go on in the body yeah um it's probably not the most important thing but no harm for every part of your yeah. life to, to be making sure you're drinking enough water. Yeah. And then in terms of kind of staying active, how important is that? Um, you know, in terms of, again, we know, you know, just for general well-being and mental health, but just in terms of fertility, yeah. how so important is that? I suppose it is important because one, we do know that if I know as well, BMI can be something that women kind of fight find quite frustrating for us to talk about but we do know that women who have an what we call a normal BMI are more likely to conceive so mm. um, if you're of a higher BMI you mightn't be ovulating if you have a lower BMI you mightn't be ovulating so if exercise helps you to maintain a healthy weight then that's obviously going to help I think it cannot be underestimated the benefit that exercise has on your mental health mm. and whether or not that's going to play a role mm. And I also think that to go into a pregnancy in your fittest state, if possible, is, is a good idea. Just with a lot of energy and... Yeah, to have like a, um, a good reserve um, to be fit and active. I think that's really going to stand to a woman if then pregnancy is something that yeah, comes. Yeah, okay. Um, so when someone comes, I don't know if, if you would see people who maybe are struggling to conceive, what would be your kind of first port of call when you're you know giving advice to someone yeah so I, we see them we see women I suppose before and then after mm. if that makes sense yeah. so we see women in the I only work publicly so we see women in the public fertility clinics and this is where women would be referred in if they're having trouble conceiving whether that be primary or secondary infertility mm. um so I wouldn't have any actually exposure to IVF itself yeah it's only then after it or IUI or XC happens that we'd see the, the pregnancies, the pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. um so women might come to us with you know trouble conceiving um you'd go through so you need a really really strong um and detailed history mm. so other medical problems um her periods what are they like um what is she eating is she on any medication mm. we do look at her bmi we talk her about that her partner um and then you would start to do the primary fertility investigations so in the first on kind of on a first visit what you might do is you would take bloods at certain mm. po- points of the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. 
So we want to check that the whole drive behind the menstrual cycle is working. Mm. So from the brain down, um, whether or not she's ovulating, whether or not um, her progesterone levels are adequate, we'd look at her thyroid, we'd do the bloods just to see does she have PCOS and we might know about it. Um, and we'd also talk if she's in a heterosexual relationship, we'd talk about getting a semen sample um, where we look to see how much sperm is in a sample, whether it's moving, whether it's um, good sperm, we'll say there's nothing wrong with it. Um, they'd be the things you'd do in the first instance. And then I suppose you'd then come up with some sort of diagnosis or there may be no diagnosis. Yeah, it may and just sometimes be... that's the more frustrating one where you say yeah. these are all normal. Mm. Um, while that's reassuring, it's it's frustrating for women to be told, well, we're not actually sure yet. And then you'd start to move on to the next one. So if we know that you're ovulating and we know that your the drive behind your menstrual cycle is there, we now need to look at other things. So the next thing we look at is your tubes. Mm. Um, so your fallopian tubes, whether or not they're open or patent. There's a few different tests we use for this. Um, so women might have heard of an, a HSG or a hycosy yeah. um, or a lap and dye, which is a little bit more invasive. And this is where we would inject a dye and take a an x-ray or an ultrasound and to see if the dye goes through the tubes. You would there. see it light up. Exactly. So it's it's really rudimentary, I suppose. You're just seeing, does the dye pass through the tubes? Yeah. Um, to see if they're open. And if they're not open, then great. That might be the driver behind this. Mm. But if they're open again, you've you found another thing that's normal. Yeah. And sometimes it does come to the, you know, you come to the end of all these and you say, we, we can't tell you. It's unexplained. Yeah. I, I don't know why, yeah, why you're yeah. not conceiving. And that's, and that's. And do you see that a lot? You do. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really, really difficult for couples. And that is then where you start to talk about fertility treatments, yeah. um, which, you know, probably couples didn't think about before. Um, and now there's the financial burden of that for them yeah. as well. Well, it's just not something I think, is, you know, if you're in a heterosexual couple, you just assume that if you want kids, it will happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you say, I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating to be told there is no problem yeah. that we can see, but it's still not happening. Um, and to be sent away to keep trying, you know, what does that look like? It it becomes a chore and it becomes yeah. a pain point and it's, yeah. it's not enjoyable mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, it really it changes, I think, the journey for people mm. um, and becomes really upsetting and really frustrating. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to now move on to some questions that people have sent sure. in. Um, so the first one was, how can you... So obviously we know that the lining of the womb or the uterus is, is really important mm-hmm. in um, protecting a lovely little fertilized mm-hmm. embryo. So how can you thicken the lining um, above five millimeters is yeah. that correct five yeah. millimeters yeah. um this person is on femtab six milligrams but it's still only going to 4.5 yeah so usually if if you have a low or a thin lining we do talk about progesterone supplements because progesterone is the thing that allows that lining to build if it's not building with progesterone i would kind of probably advise this person to go for individualized um assessment okay yeah, yeah. That, that's that would be the she seems to be on the first line treatment so that's a difficult one so it would kind of be further investigation as to what's as to happening why, yeah okay why that's not um does we've touched on this does bmi affect ivf it does um i suppose 
One, we know that BMI does affect um, conception rates and there are some clinics um, in Ireland who unfortunately have a blanket rule of where they won't accept um, women or patients with a BMI um, above a certain cutoff. Yeah, which so, obviously we, we don't do that. It's a yeah, individualised yeah. care. Yeah. Um, so it affects it in that way in the first instance. Um, and then women have to look for alternatives like yourselves. Um, and it does affect success as well. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's it's one of, there are lots of factors that affect it, but it is one factor. Yeah, to consider. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, again, we've touched on this, but what treatments might work for patients with endometriosis? I'm assuming this is in order to get pregnant. Yeah, I suppose if you have severe endo and we're talking kind of stage three, stage mm. four, it's surgery um, would be your option for fertility. So you'd need to be referred to a gynecologist who specializes in it, probably looking at a keyhole surgery um, to remove the endo that's there and to try and create some mobility in the tissues. Here's a question, actually. Hmm. This wasn't sent in, but just I thought of it there. If someone needs surgery, would it be possible for them to just do IVF, not just do IVF, but to go through fertility treatment, do IVF to become pregnant, or would they have to have the surgery first before doing the IVF? No, you're spot on. So if you could go ahead with IVF without the surgery. I suppose surgery, you would need to definitively diagnose if you're stage three, stage four. Mm. So you could say, look, I just want the surgery to look. I don't want you to do anything. If it's there, we'll go ahead with the IVF. Okay. Yeah. So you could just kind of have an investigation. Exactly. If you're kind of thinking of, of doing fertility treatment yeah. anyways. Yeah. But just to know exactly what's going on. Exactly. Okay. Um, can secondary infertility happen after a miscarriage, after your first pregnancy? It's probably not linked, which I think can mm. be really difficult not to associate it. Um, unfortunately, they're both things that are probably way more common than we think. So miscarriage, anything to one in four and one in five women um, and secondary infertility itself is, is probably more common than we think. The two shouldn't be linked. So it's not necessarily if you have a miscarriage after you've had your first yeah. baby, it's not immediately going to be defined as secondary infertility. Exactly, yeah. I think this this is just an unlucky yeah. cascade of... Is there a, a criteria for how many miscarriages you would have to go through for it to be classed yeah unfortunately and it is changing it's three in a row at the moment mm. um before we we would consider there to be a problem and to look into it but that is changing um there's a lot of work in the perinatal center down in cork mm. that are kind of trying to drive change with this and to individualize um assessment is there any funding at the moment for those who are classed as as having secondary infertility or is that still there's there's nothing there's nothing yeah. yeah um and i think i you might know better mm. i saw a graph recently and it's ranking ireland second lowest second lowest yeah. in the eu um yeah. for what we provide for women yeah and i don't know is there anything else we're second lowest in do you know i know it's, usually... it's completely crazy yeah. that there's no um public assistance mm-hmm. uh, completely crazy yeah. um, and unnecessary and just another way that <laughs> Women we're are, failing yeah failing you know yeah okay in your experience does a do the pcos cycles improve after you've had a pregnancy and after your first baby not in my experience they no. kind of just go back yeah. to the way they were yeah. no i haven't experienced that a baby would improve symptoms yeah because with i 
I believe for many people with endo, while they're pregnant, the symptoms improve. Yeah. 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 So it's, you've lost the hormonal drive, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the symptoms. It's a whole different kind of hormonal drive then. (laughs) You've lost the, we'll say, I sorry, I was doing a little circle with my hand. You've lost the menstrual cycle drive where the hormones go up and down. So you sort of, you abate the symptoms. But unfortunately, once that little baby is born, those symptoms It goes back back to to what it was previously. So it's not cured, it's just on hold on hold yeah we really have to put up with a lot don't we a lot yeah um is an IVF pregnancy any riskier than any other pregnancy and are there precautions that I should be taking not precautions I don't think I'd advise any precautions Mm -hmm. they are treated as higher risk pregnancies um so I suppose we do put them into the higher risk pregnancy class and there is also a lot of discussion when women come up to their due date about induction because of this the evidence on it is quite weak Mm. unfortunately um which can be really frustrating um but it will be classified as a as a higher risk pregnancy yeah no i know i was definitely i mean i was classified on two counts because of of ivf and and the diabetes so there was no way I was not going to be induced um but I wonder is some of that because a lot of people who are accessing fertility treatment are doing so because of other conditions that maybe would in in turn you know put them into a high risk category exactly and that's that's a little bit of the thought process that actually is the higher risk status of an IVF pregnancy because of the underlying conditions yeah and I think when we see more and more um same-sex couples um undergoing IVF will we see different risk profiles in those couples because you know a lot of um if it's a same-sex couple there may be no underlying um condition so I think as we see more of that it'll be interesting to compare the two groups to see actually is it not the IVF that's high risk is it the underlying conditions that preceded the IVF yeah I suppose the more data we have the more we can kind of develop these yeah because like for I know for a lot of like my friends who've gone Mm -hmm. through IVF and they're classed as high risk and there's literally nothing nothing you know there's no conditions there's nothing they're literally yeah um absolutely shouldn't be classed Mm -hmm. as as high risk um but yeah it's 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 yeah I think that would be an interesting one to look at and Mm -hmm. it'll be you will have two nice groups there to compare yeah yeah that was good okay last question Mm -hmm. Um, is there a correlation between pre-pregnancy weight and gestational diabetes so you would see this in your is it Tuesday clinics yes 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 and there is so um, I'm always really careful with this because for some reason when women get gestational diabetes there's a lot of blame and guilt with it it's awful and you don't see it with anything else so when a woman if a woman gets um, preeclampsia or obstetric cholestasis there's none of that but with gestational diabetes there's so much women always say I failed the test or I obviously was eating too much sugar and things like that so gestational diabetes is not your fault Mm. and often there's nothing you can do it's it's your response to the pregnancy hormones but there is a higher risk of it if your BMI or your pre-pregnancy weight is higher but that doesn't mean it's your fault if that makes sense yes and yeah so actually just to follow on from that the the test for gestational diabetes it is it still the drinking the that gross, gross drink yeah. that's the only good thing about 
having pre-existing diabetes (laughs) is not having to do that because it's awful yeah I'd love to actually try it so I can you should try it although it's literally pure sugar isn't it yeah so you wouldn't feel very good after I think because I always say yeah I know it's it's awful but I've actually never had it (laughs) I think you should try it yeah um it seems I don't know it just seems bizarre to me to be giving sugar as a test but I know you have to yeah. see how your body responds yeah. to it but yeah it, it's always seemed like a bizarre test to me to, yeah yeah to give you something that we're telling you to avoid yeah no and yeah. I know for um just being in those clinics every like I was in every week every second mm-hmm. week throughout both pregnancies so you know and I'd see so many women with gestational diabetes and just there's so much shame around it so and much and I think I put up I put something on my Instagram recently and mm. there was the response was I found it really upsetting it was um people have been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and it was the responses they got from from medical professionals and from we'll say friends and family and it was things like oh were you were you not eating a healthy diet oh but you're so skinny mm. oh it was obviously you know I saw you having yeah you know that ice cream last week you know there's so much shame and you do not see it with any other condition in pregnancy um even like diabetes in general you get people like is that the good or the bad kind (laughs) are you allowed to have sugar can you have no sugar um and it's just it's a lot more complex and nuanced than that Mm -hmm. and yes I for sure know that there are a lot of medical professionals hopefully that's dying out I'm delighted to know that you're in that clinic now Mm -hmm. um but I know that there in the past have been a lot of medical professionals who have not been so compassionate Mm -hmm. towards pregnant people and um yeah just a lot of blame and shame Mm -hmm. and just making people feel bad and it's there's no need because it doesn't it doesn't achieve anything it's not going to improve yeah uh, the outcome for the patient it's not going to make them feel any better mm-hmm. if anything it's going to make things worse yeah and that's and less likely to trust you and to mm-hmm. engage with you and you you totally break down the relationship yeah and then they're just going to be lying to you yeah I know I know for a fact <laughs> yeah. um the the first time around I didn't have Professor Daly I had someone else who shall remain nameless um but I used to, you know, fill in the little book. Mm-hmm. Now, on the second pregnancy, I had my um, insulin pump. So I would get all my readings from that so I could just print it out. But the first time around, I didn't have that. So I'd be writing in the little book, you know, your yeah. pre, pre-breakfast, pre after breakfast, your blood sugar. And I used to just fill that in right before I went in. It's complete lies. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have a relationship yeah. with my consultant. I knew that they would shout at me or berate me or make me feel bad Mm -hmm. and I didn't need that so I just I lied yeah so if 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 your consultant isn't compassionate and understanding Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like no good comes from that there's just no point in anyone even bothering to attend the clinic at that point yeah exactly yeah okay I I could talk about (laughs) (laughs) that all day but anyways um I think that's that's us for today um thank you so much for coming in pleasure to meet you in person pleasure to chat all things fertility and yeah thank you so much and keep doing your amazing work who knows I might see you you at some point (laughs) third time round perfect thank you so much for having me on it was a pleasure thank you We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. If you have, please rate, review and subscribe. For more information on the services we offer, you can visit www.therapyfertility.com.